Hello, and welcome to episode 183 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. I know some of our listeners will be happy to hear your voice back as well. I did a live stream with Gabe earlier in the week about the hurricane hunters and how to use flight radar 24 to, to track uh, the storm. <laughs> and we had one commenter say, well, but I, I didn't hear as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And, and I thought you can only hear that on a Friday. Yeah. Funny enough, this is actually the first I'm even hearing of that even happening. So that, I hope it went well. I think it went well. And we're going to keep doing more of them. And, and I hope that you'll join for some in the future in which you can lend your area of expertise. But this one was was all about hurricanes and hurricane hunters. So I hope people found that useful. If you, if you want to go back and watch, you can check out our YouTube channel for that. We'll put a link in the show notes. But Jason, you are back from your travels. I, I hope they were well. Yeah. Thank you. I'm back from Seattle. Went out there not anything airplane related other than flying out to Seattle and back. Had a couple interesting flights. All went mostly well, but yeah, I'm back. It was good. Mostly good. (laughs) It was okay. It was okay. Yeah. I originally booked Alaska out to Seattle on a 737 MAX 9. It would have actually been my very first flight on a 737 MAX, but it seems like it's just it's still not meant to be, and I canceled and ended up rebooking on uh, Delta. I think I mentioned this in the last episode because I saw a yeah. shiny object, and that shiny object was the A321neo, which unfortunately got replaced on my flight out to Seattle by a 737-900ER. They had some bad luck with the, the Neo fleet that week. I think one had a bird strike, and another got stuck somewhere. So a couple flights took some very lengthy delays, but thankfully mine just resulted in a, an equipment swap, thankfully, which these days, it's I guess it's a bit easier for airlines to find another airplane lying around somewhere to, to operate my flight. But Thought we were going to get out on time at first, and then we had this, like, not a freak morning thunderstorm, but an unusual morning thunderstorm. And I'm watching the inbound aircraft coming into JFK at around around 9 o'clock, and just plane after plane after plane starts diverting. And I'm thinking, ah, crap, if my plane diverts, that's at least a two-hour delay by the time the aircraft goes to Philly or Harrisburg or Buffalo or Albany gasses up and then gets back to JFK. But thankfully, of I think the five aircraft in the racetrack holding pattern over southern New York, mine was the only aircraft that managed to actually continue on to JFK. So that was nice. They knew you were going to be on the plane. I'm just going to say that's, I know this is a a throwback, but it's the Delta difference that a lot of (laughs) other airlines probably didn't take maximum fuel or they didn't want to burn the fuel and that they wanted to divert and try again. But Delta, bless them, they just kept going around in circles until air traffic control told them you could continue on to JFK. And I appreciated that. When stubbornness and excellent planning pays off. Yeah. In the end, it didn't really matter all that much because we took an hour and a half delay after pushing back because those same storms came over JFK and and closed all the departures for a good while. And it was pretty gross out. But we got out. We ended up in Seattle only with like a 50-minute delay. So not too bad. These days, that is excellent news. Yeah. And that's my like worst flight delay all summer into the fall season. So I'll take it. 
There you go. So let's talk about what's happening now in Florida. It is Wednesday, September 28th. Hurricane Ian has come ashore near the Tampa area. Last night, Tampa, so Tuesday evening, Tampa airports closed for the next couple of days. Orlando airport closed today. Disney World is closed. There are Waffle Houses closing. This is Way a to bad go, storm. Ian. Way to go. Yeah, yeah. So if any of our listeners are, are down in Florida, we hope you're you're safe and well and things work out for you soon. As far as hurricane-related aviation goes, Florida's a ghost town at the moment. Miami has has escaped the brunt of it and has done quite well for itself being able to continue operating flights, which is a bit of a saving grace as far as connectivity and, and being able to get supplies into Florida go. But Tampa is certainly going to be out of commission for a while. The Hurricane Hunter aircraft were active or have been active for weeks now, but over the last few days, really a lot of flights into the hurricane. And apparently today's, I, I follow a few of the, the Hurricane Hunter Twitter accounts, as well as Nick Underwood, who's an engineer for NOAA that flies aboard the Hurricane Hunter aircraft. And he shared some some video that we'll link to in the show notes. And it was nasty looking. Yeah, they seem to uh, get rocked around even more than usual. And that, that says a lot for the Hurricane Hunters. Some of the videos are, are just imagine the worst turbulence you've ever been in and then crank it up a little bit more. The video that he posted in his description of it was the vertical turbulence wasn't, he said they've experienced before, but it was the the lateral movement that really made the difference as far as how turbulent it was. And he shared some pictures of the I guess there's a bunk in the rear of the aircraft. This is one of the WP3Ds. I believe he was in Kermit, NOAA 42 today. And there's apparently a bunk in the back that came out of where the bunk is supposed to be and there was coffee everywhere and things like that. So if you want to get a interesting look at what happened inside the aircraft, by all means, have a click on that in the show notes. But they continue to to work. It, it came across it made landfall as a Category Four storm. Maximum some stated winds of about 150 miles per hour, and then unfortunately, it's going to slow down, and parts of Florida could get over two feet of rain. So not a great story, and certainly one we're following to see the overall aviation impact over the next couple of days. Yeah, by the time this podcast comes out, I'm sure we'll already know the aftermath and the damage and the, and the toll. But the east coast of Florida operating pretty much as scheduled. But Tampa is actually quite a large base for maintenance and cargo conversions. So there's actually quite a number of commercial aircraft still on the ground at Tampa that were not able to be evacuated. I think there are four Frontier A320neos. I'm not quite sure why they're there. There's a pair of formerly SAS A321s that are being converted to freighters a trio of United 737s. So actually, I think there are four. So I hope those aircraft are buttoned down or stashed away in a hangar and it'll be okay somewhere. But that's more aircraft on the ground at Tampa. Category 4 hurricane than I would have expected. Though obviously, uh, if they were airworthy, they would have been removed. Yeah, most likely. So hopefully they are safely inside a hangar or, or at least some sort of cover. But We'll see how things turn out. We'll have more about Hurricane Ian in the show next week once we know kind of what the damage and the fallout from the storm passing over Florida is. But until then, everyone, we hope you're staying safe if you're impacted by the storm and hang in there. Last week, 
in the show, we talked about the kind of electric aspect of aviation. We talked about the the ES-30, which airlines are warming up to, that's being manufactured or designed and manufactured by heart. And then we talked about Aviation's Alice aircraft, which was scheduled to fly at the beginning of this week. And it did. It conducted a rather short first flight. Eight minutes. It didn't stray far from the airfield. And it did what it needed to do to prove that the aircraft could fly. So congratulations to them. Looking forward to seeing kind of them expand the flight envelope of the aircraft and and what happens over future test flights. I hope they fix their transponder. There's a couple different transponder modes. And I think we've talked about this before in the context of air shows, where there's a mode on the transponder where you can set it to not report an altitude. So it says, here I am, I'm here, this is my position in space, but it doesn't provide the 3D portion of the position, which is which is the altitude. And it looks like that's how they ran the aircraft at the beginning of the week out in Moses Lake, because we have the track of the aircraft just fine, but it looks like they drove around the entire time, which obviously they didn't, especially if you look at the, the GPS altitude, which is the information that comes out outside of the ADS-B data as part of the extended mode S data. So hopefully they fix that for next time so we can see how high they're flying much more easily. Yeah. Congratulations. All involved out there in Moses Lake. That was uh, a nice moment. The largest battery electric aircraft to fly to date. I don't believe this is going to end up being the production version of the aircraft, more of a proof of concept or a prototype, but it's exciting nonetheless. And it's a looker. It is a very good looking aircraft. So yeah, let's hope for hope for the best there. They've got kind of a, an air taxi version, a VIP version, and a cargo version coming down the pipe. So it, it'll be interesting to see how each of those develop and, and the changes that come out towards production. Also happening this week is the 41st assembly of ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and that is taking place in Montreal. They are meeting to hopefully achieve some sort of consensus on the future path for how aircraft are powered. What is the role of carbon in the future of aviation? And how are we all going to get there? These are governments meeting on the back of the meeting last year that kind of laid out a pathway forward that was based on airline agreements and industry agreements. These are governments coming together and being encouraged by airlines, airframers like Airbus and Boeing to kind of come to an agreement on what the rules are going to be worldwide for aviation moving forward. So by next week, we'll hopefully have some positive news to see how those nations have reached an agreement, we hope. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that actually comes about and how toothful, I guess is an interesting way of putting it, the agreements will be. There's some speculation that the agreements that are already in place could be weakened. There's concern that the nations that have a more developed aviation sector that contribute more now to emissions could have a a negative impact on developing nations that are 
beginning to contribute more, but are not yet because, you know, the question of fairness, hey, you've already developed and you're already admitting this, why can't we versus coming together and saying, okay, we need to to figure out a way to stop releasing so much carbon and ideally release no more carbon into the atmosphere. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this week's meetings. Yep. Very interesting because if there's anything, a, a whole host of governments can get in a room and do. It's, it's typically not agree on something and put it in writing, but hopefully something useful comes out of this assembly. We shall see. We'll see. Very good points by some of those countries though, but there's a lot to do. Yeah, there is a lot to do and it'll be rather interesting to see not so much the agreement because everyone agrees what needs to happen. The interesting part is, can we all agree on a timeline? How do we make it happen and how enforceable is any agreement? Because you can agree on anything, but then if airlines or air framers or countries themselves are free to kind of ignore the agreement, well, then what's the point of the agreement in the first place? So it'll be interesting to see the enforcement mechanisms that that come about out of any eventual agreement here. Yeah, I'd like to see some sort of mechanisms on the use of SAF and what exactly can go into the production of SAF since you don't want to divert feedstock or, or actual crops that could be used to feed people into SAFs and maybe not to specifically target boom here, but maybe some limitations on what you can use SAFs for and not silly things like burning four times as much for supersonic aircraft would be a good thing to jot down on paper. Well, <laughs> maybe even something a little bit stronger than paper. Do we Should we go back to chiseling things in stone? I think so. Writing this in stone would be good. Then you have to listen that'd be, to it. That'd be one way to do it. We've actually got a whole mess of things that fall under the governments coming up with more rules or changing rules things. So let's just run through them all. One thing that was released earlier this week that I thought was well-timed because we just talked about this are the FAA releases a the Vertiport design standards. So these are the design standards for any area, whether it's on the ground or on top of a building, that is going to be able to handle these various and sundry collection of VTOL or eVTOL aircraft. So it's a a very thorough, in-depth, as you would expect from, from the FAA's technical guidance about where you can build, how you can build, the design markers, what needs to come about, what type of lighting you need, where the lighting needs to be, what color it needs to be, shape, size, et cetera, et cetera. The most interesting thing for me, besides the whole thing, but picking out one little piece, is the vertiport visual identification symbol. Yes. I think you just added this at the last second before we started talking about it, but I actually had it starred because I was just reading this as well and I wanted to talk about it. But it's basically heliport, but some interesting additions to that. What I particularly found interesting was the distance you're going to be able to put this from a taxiway or a runway. And for small airplane, runway and taxiways, it only has to be a minimum of 300 feet away, which is not all that far. I don't know exactly what the rules are for helicopters. I'm pretty sure those can 
land on the runway or over the runway and pretend to land and, and taxi in over the taxiways. But yeah, I do quite like the imagery. I think on the very second to last page of the PDF where they even put out proposed vertiport caution signs. And it's it looks like a very particular model of this type of aircraft, even though we know some of the designs can be wildly different. I think that what they went with was kind of the the drone adjacent right. pictogram where they're like, people kind of already know what a drone looks like. So let's just go with this. Let's just go with a quadcopter and call it a day. Yeah. And it'll be fine. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the We'll go with the website, and then if you want to click through and read the the detailed PDF, by all means, please feel free to do so. Yeah, some uh, interesting parts to that, especially the uh, the beacon. So every vertiport is going to have to have a beacon for night operations, which I, I didn't think was going to be something that even allow. But the vertiports are going to have a a beacon flashing white, yellow, or green with a rate of thirty to forty five flashes per minute. So if you have a vertiport placed somewhere near where you live you're going to see it. Yeah. On the good side, the pilots will certainly see it. On the downside, if your building is higher than the location of an on-rooftop vertiport, you'll also see it. Yes. And that's also assuming there is a pilot, since many of these are proposed to be pilotless, at least at some point. So there's a lot of infrastructure and safety measures like beacons and windsocks for no particular reason for some of these aircraft, at least. Well, these design standards are only for piloted. Ah, I must have missed that in the the 45-page document. It's in like the very beginning, like before you actually get into the meat of the thing where it's they, they kind of lay out their suppositions. And so these rules are specifically tailored towards piloted eVTOLs. But to your point, yeah, eventually, most if not all of these are eventually – the goal is that there isn't a pilot because a pilot takes up weight and space and and they just want these things to fly on their own. So it'll be interesting to see how that design changes if it does at all. I mean, it, it seems to me that – those things like the beacon and the wind cone, those are easy to to have for backup in case there is a pilot operating in, in this particular aircraft or anything like that. So who knows? Maybe they they come up with different design schema or or they just leave them in there. But some good reading if technical guidance on vertiport design is your thing. Or if you just want to learn more about how the things that are going to supposedly be dotting your neighborhood are eventually going to look. Let's stick with the U.S. and talk about rules for passengers. The U.S. Department of Transportation is proposing that airline fees are disclosed all together. Any expected fees are disclosed all together in the first time an airfare is displayed to the consumer. All right. We sure do love forcing airlines to disclose all their fees and the total fare ahead of time, whereas we're not doing anything of the sort with hotels or rental cars or any other part of the travel industry. I I just booked a few things today, and man, do I hate when the price jumps from when you first see it to whatever it is at the final where they end all the resort fees and city fees and taxes and all that, and suddenly the price doubles. They have really targeted airlines. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what they're looking to do is make more upfront the fees for seating a family together or baggage fees or what were some of the other things? What is it? Ticket change fees? Are you going to have baggage fees? Are there any cancellation fees? Anything that would add to the cost of the ticket would be shown 
as part of the cost of the ticket, the first time that the price of the ticket is displayed to you, which I think is a good idea writ large. I mean, and I think the airlines have half a leg to stand on, I guess, because as you mentioned, like it's bad when you go to book a car or a hotel or anything really. And then you get two thirds of the way through the process and you're like, okay, this seems like a fairly good deal. And then they're like, oh, but wait, here's the actual price. Yeah, it's not great. And travel is not the only industry that does this nonsense. It's like, you're a Comcast subscriber. So it's probably like when they send you a thing in the mail that says, hey, you can get cable service for $30 a month. But that doesn't include the mandatory cable modem rental fee or the mandatory cable box rental fee. It is literally impossible to get that $30 rate. It's much the same with hotels and rental cars, much worse with rental cars in my mind than hotels or aviation at this point. But yeah, the DOT really seems to be cracking down on airlines after the summer of misery that we had this year. And I think, you know, certainly some of it is feeling political pressure. Why stop at airlines? Why not just have it the same forever? Like, just show me the price that you want me to pay for the thing that I want yep, across the board for anything. That'd be great. I would love that. I would love that. And I think that, you know, the argument is, is well, it conditions, you know, we, we've conditioned people to expect to, to pay less and then we can, you know, add more things in. But why can't you tell me what those things are going to cost just up front? I mean, I think one of the things is with a, with airline or with airfares, you're searching against multiple, multiple airlines. In a single search, you can you know find in, in, in travel in general you can find prices for multiple offers. But then once you click into one, you're like, oh well, that's not what the price was, and now I got to go back and start again. Yeah, not great, but I'd love some equal love across the travel industry. It's not just airlines; everyone needs these rules applied equally. In my mind. Let's go on to the other side of things with regulations being taken away. Hong Kong is scrapping their hotel quarantine. You'll still need tests. You will still need to stay away from certain places like restaurants until you are cleared. But other than that, you are now good to go for Hong Kong. As soon as that was announced, Cathay Pacific's website crashed and they instituted a waiting room and i went to to book a ticket and had to wait i think it was 17 minutes to be able to to book a ticket and then you had to complete your purchase within a, a certain amount of time so interesting there to to see how quickly things are coming back once the rules are dropped japan is reopening visa free from October 11th, so just a few weeks' time. I know Jason is happy about that one. Well, yeah, Japan, I mean, more so than Hong Kong, Japan went from straight up, no, you cannot fly to Japan, please go away, to, all right, everyone, everyone, come on in. At least Hong Kong, you could go to Hong Kong if you were willing to put up with the the quarantine, but Japan was just a straight up no for a long time. Yeah, and and then they were like, well, you can come if you – Book in a certain way with a certain. That was a non-invitation to pull the quote from Seinfeld. That that was an invitation to come to Japan, <laughs> but not really. They didn't want you to come no. because nobody wanted to do that. If you have to, but this is a no tourist visa, no no nothing. Just October eleventh, show up in Japan, and then Canada is dropping pretty much 
all of its rules. Not pretty much. It, it's like there are no rules. As of October 1st, no uh, Canada is, is ditching everything from the arrive can requirement, which is the app you needed to fill out before you flew to uh, Canada, to COVID testing at random, e- even the mask requirement, which they still do require on all flights and train and public transit. They're just ditching everything on October 1st. So that's Interesting, because they only just somewhat recently reinstituted the random COVID testing upon entry into Canada, which is annoying and problematic. But come October 1st, COVID's over you in have to wait about Canada, it, apparently. apparently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Let's turn now to some of the things that didn't go well for airlines this week. We've got a COPA 737 that went off the runway in Panama City. That was a landing in poor weather. The aircraft suffered a runway excursion to the left of the runway, went off-roading for quite a bit. We'll put a link to the data in the show notes. Basically went down the left side of the runway for, for quite some time through the grass, came to rest deep in the mud, but no one was injured. All right. That's good. That's good news there. Yeah. An ad for uh, runway safety areas right there. Yeah, that's very true. And then a West Atlantic 737 landing in Montpellier in France decided that it needed a a drink in the bay. It came to rest. It it left the usable portion of the runway to use um, technical terms and kind of euphemism there and ended up with its nose in the bay. There were three crew members on board. All three escaped with only... Uh, minor injuries. Another ad for runway safety areas. So there you go. Yeah. Thankfully, this one, it it stopped just short to make the uh, pictures look like it was just a little thirsty and wanted a drink of some fresh bay water. (laughs) And the thing that was, I mean, outside of the reasons for, for why the aircraft did that, the most interesting thing about all of that to me was the recovery of the aircraft out of the water and off the end of the runway using two cranes. And we shared a picture that was posted by the airport authority and it showed one of the cranes not quite leaning over, but the boom was definitely bending. And I'm sure that's part of the design of the crane, but it was like, it was a little bendy. Yeah. Airplanes are heavy. (laughs) Airplanes are heavy, especially ones that have a bit of water in them. Mm -hmm. A little waterlogged. Okay, Jason, two things that I need you to explain to me. I'll try. The first is Virgin Atlantic joining SkyTeam, which seems to make sense on the face of it. And one of those, why hadn't they done that already? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I knew they weren't SkyTeam, but does this even change anything? They're mostly owned by Delta, I think 49% Delta, maybe 51 or something. I can't remember if it's minority or majority, but who cares? They're, they're so intertwined with Delta, this doesn't make a difference to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what the purpose of this is. But then Sky Team also said they're not looking to take on any new members into the alliance. And I'm just here thinking, like, why not? You're the weakest alliance. But also, why say that? Yeah, why say that? Exactly. The Sky Team is by far the weakest alliance compared to One World or a Star. So why is Sky Team looking at Virgin Atlantic, an airline that doesn't really bring much to the table, and saying, no, we're, we're okay? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. Speaking of I got nothing, I will read word for word the press release title. British Airways and Qatar Airways complete expansion to form the largest airline joint business. Okay. What's that mean? 
I don't know. All I know is that Qatar owns some percentage of BA and they cooperate because they're both one world. And do you need to know more than that? I don't understand. They made it seem like it was this huge, big event, kind of like Emirates and United a few weeks ago. And this is not that. I don't know why they were tweeting up to it about some major announcement. It's nobody, no, nobody could figure out what it is they announced. Like all of the factual statements that are part of the press release are just random factual statements about either airline. And it's very confusing to me, other than the fact you can now more closely as a passenger link your frequent flyer accounts. That seemed to be the major benefit from a passenger's perspective. Sure, if they can actually deliver on that. I mean, it took three months for American to post miles from a recent Iberia flight. Three months. And that's in a joint venture immunized Atlantic JV thing. Uh, so I can't imagine that this brings, again, much to the table. But sure, whatever. Once we figure out what it is they actually announced, we'll let you know. So that's to say, we'll probably never let you know because we'll never figure out what they announced. <laughs> we'll have to figure it out one day and try and make our Something way happened. Something might be easier. There might be more routes. They weren't specific. That's all there is to it. All right. Sounds good. Okay. After we recorded last week, I think this came out Thursday. This was one of those stories where there was an initial article that said, this is probably going to happen. And then about two minutes later, it was released everywhere, which always like, why write that? Why not just wait for- Because they had to be first. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, what, what happened? The US Securities and Exchange Commission, which is in charge of regulating- among other things, public businesses, so businesses that are listed publicly on the stock exchange and have public investors, they are responsible for regulating, among other things, those companies and the statements they make about their business that could have a material impact on whether or not someone would reasonably want to invest money into the business. The SEC was investigating Boeing for making possibly misleading statements no. after the 737 MAX crashes. So what the investigation hinged on was the rosy picture that Boeing and CEO Dennis Muhlenberg were painting after the MAX crashes saying that the Boeing 737 MAX is one of the safest aircraft to ever fly. It's as safe as any other aircraft in the sky and so on and so forth. And so the SEC's investigation was into whether or not those statements were fundamentally misleading towards investors based on what Boeing knew and what CEO Dennis Muhlenberg specifically knew about the 737 MAX crashes. So fast forward to last week, the SEC and Boeing and Muhlenberg settled. Boeing has agreed to pay $200 million to settle the case and Muhlenberg will individually pay $1 million oh, to settle no. the case. One sixtieth of his golden parachute from when he was forced out of Boeing. How will he move on? I don't know. What he will do is he, he moved on quickly. He will cut a check or pay in pennies. I don't know. But the man walked away from Boeing with a $60 million golden parachute. So I think he'll be able to pay this fine while laughing. I don't know. I hope not while laughing. Well, given past performance, he'll probably be laughing. Yeah. I mean, some of the 
public statements that he made following the the first crash, especially and up to the second crash were, I don't know if they were laughing, but yeah, they definitely weren't great. They were measurably $1 million worth of not great. Okay. That's a fair assessment at this point. Let's talk about some aircraft orders. And then the last story we're going to talk about this week is just- A stupid topic, but we have to mention it. Yeah, we'll get there. So Jason, tell me about the new airline that is coming to a shipping container near you. Yeah. One of the world's largest shipping companies or shipping shippers, I don't know, container shipping companies in the world, if not the largest, is uh, moving from shipping ships to aircraft, which is an interesting twist. So the same company that tried to buy out uh, ITA a little while ago, which is the corpse of Alitalia, is moving into air freight because apparently that's really, really lucrative these days. And they will lease four 777 freighters that will be operated by Atlas Air and painted in a new MSC livery. So that that's exciting. We Not every day we get a new 777 operator. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not unheard of in recent memory or, or recent developments, both as, what is it, CGSCGM and Maersk are beginning their own dedicated air cargo operations. So it makes perfect sense at this point for MSC to get in on the game. It'll be interesting to see what happens when there's an eventual downturn, whether or not they they stick around. But for now, it'll it'll be interesting to see. It's pretty modest. It's just four aircraft operated by Atlas right now, starting the beginning of next year. But clearly, there is a void in the the air freight world that they think they can help fill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes boats just aren't fast enough, you know? Sometimes boats just aren't fast enough. Let's see. What other orders do we have? We have Shaman Air has ordered 40 A320neo aircraft. And the reason that's a very interesting order is because, Jason? They're an all Boeing airline. At least up until not they anymore. at least until they get their first A320 family aircraft. And it's not an insignificant fleet. They have 150 total 737s of that is uh, 10 Max 8s, which May or may not fly ever again, I don't know. And 12 787s split evenly between the 8 and 9. So very interesting that yet another all-Boeing airline is converting over to Airbus. They're not completely surprising given what's going on in China, the tensions between China and the US. So this is not completely unexpected, but still a major break for a very loyal Boeing customer, though I'm assuming not by choice. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they they further develop their fleet. Though I guess it is good that Airbus is preparing for a 50 rate for the A320 family, continuing preparations for 50 aircraft a month. And could we see 75 like they say we're going to see by 2025 at this rate? Probably. Maybe. Which is just crazy to me. Well, they'd have to really crank up their assembly lines out in Mobile and Hamburg and Toulouse. But it's like they feel like they can do it. And if they say they can do it, they probably can. Let's stay in China and talk about what happened over the weekend, because this was just a very, very strange episode. Over the weekend, we started to get a number of social media queries about flights in China. And we get a lot of questions you know, about particular airlines or particular airports or, or things like that. But this was across you know, questions about are have thousands of flights been canceled in China? 
and it was a very concerted effort and it centered around the hashtag that started trending called China coup, basically claiming that Chinese president Xi Jinping had been removed and a coup was underway. And part of the evidence for this was that there weren't any flights flying in China and that there were thousands and thousands and thousands, nearly 10,000 flight cancellations in China each day. And that was news. The problem with these things is not that they were untrue because both of those statements were factually correct. There were no flights appearing or very few flights appearing on Flight Radar 24 at the time that those pictures were taken. Jason, when do you think those screenshots were captured? Oh, I can tell you exactly when it was because people tagged me in these tweets and I just replied once before ignoring the topic entirely. It was like 4 (laughs) a.m. And if you've ever flown anywhere before, you're probably aware that flights don't typically depart in the middle of the night unless you're in Dubai or something like that. But those are long-haul flights. There There are not a mass of flights that depart all times of day. Pilots sleep, people sleep, passengers generally don't want to part at, depart at 3.45 in the morning. So there just weren't a lot of flights and that's, you know, that happens everywhere, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. So that was part one of the um, factually correct but erroneous information. And then part two was the thousands and thousands and thousands of canceled flights. That part is absolutely true as well. But it has nothing to do with anything related to this week's events or anything like that. It has everything to do with how China and Chinese airlines have decided to process the massive schedule changes that have been in place since late January of 2020. Whereas a lot of other airlines and regions decided that they would remove flights from the flight program and say, instead of scheduling 100 flights, we're now only scheduling 20. And then bringing that number back up as things changed. Airlines in China didn't do that at all. They have kept all of the flights for over two years scheduled and canceled them on a daily basis. Yeah, it's not particularly a great practice. It drives me nuts. It it is ridiculous. But here we are in the US with a massive Category 4, nearly 5 hurricane bearing down on Florida. And China Eastern still has a higher percentage by a wide margin of canceled flights than any airline in the US. So yeah, that's typical. There are thousands of canceled flights in China literally every day. And among those that are not canceled, they are not departing at 3.15 in the morning. So that was a very interesting way to spend a bit of my weekend trying to figure out what was going on and why why it was happening. So some interesting interneting. Interesting is one way to put it. Yet another lesson in why you should not just take anything you see on the internet for the truth because it's probably not right if you do the trust your sources and make sure minimal amount of research. Yes. So there you go. Trusted sources and as much context as you can grab. So that was an interesting way to spend the weekend. And then we we are into the week. We're going to have some really good conversations coming up over the next couple weeks. Tomorrow, we're chatting with Mike from Flying in Life. So we're going to talk with him about being a dispatcher for a major US airline. So all the questions that you've already sent in, we're going to talk about and that'll be available in a, in a future episode. And we're also talking with the commercial director from ANSL, which is the organization that manages air traffic at Gatwick Airport. And that conversation is really going to center around what it's like 
to get into the aviation industry as a young woman and move your way up through the industry and some opportunities that are available for young women looking to get into the aviation industry. So if you have a friend, colleague, family member who's looking for some tips on how to do that, as we know, the, the aviation industry is still heavily skewed male, doing a small bit to, to change that and promote a bit more participation by women in the industry. So I hope that that will be a fruitful conversation for many of us. And we'll have that next week as well. So for this week, this has been episode 183. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>